we are um, shifting gears. We took three weeks to talk about worship, and now we're shifting gears. We're headed back to the Old Testament, back to Genesis, uh, where we were looking at the story of Abraham. Um, Genesis chapter 21. Now, the tagline, if you will, of Abraham that we see in the New Testament is this. Um, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was a man of faith. That, that, was, that is the tagline of the New Testament. When it looks back at Abraham, Abraham was a man of faith, the father, if you will, of the faith. And it's certainly true, yet he's also a man who at times is tragically lacking faith. We've seen that throughout this story. And as we come back to the story of Abraham, we're coming off the heels of one of those situations where Abraham feared man more than fearing the Lord. You'll remember the story where he allowed his wife, Sarah, to be taken as Abimelech's wife, the king of this southern city in the Negev. And uh, thankfully, the Lord intervenes. But we have this messy story, and we're, we're coming just on the heels of that story where Abraham said, this is my sister and not my wife. Now, ever since God had reiterated his promise to Abraham and Sarah, things have actually been pretty dark in our story. So before the story of Abimelech, we had the story of of the incest between Lot and his daughters, which was tragic. And before that, we had the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's been a dark period. Abraham and Sarah went from being on this spiritual high of covenant-making and entertaining angels and being given the promise that they were going to have a son within a year to all this darkness. And they're coming out of this situation with Abimelech and Sarah is wondering, what about the promise? Remember, at the end of that story with Abimelech, after this dark period, God opens the womb, the wounds that he had closed of the people in this city where Abimelech was king. Can you imagine what it was like for Sarah to hear that? And not say, what about me? What about me? Well, that's where we are. What about me, Sarah? What about you? We're going to look right now. What about you and Abraham and the promise that God has made to you? Let's turn into God's Word to Genesis chapter 21. There's just a few verses, verses 1 to 7. And this is the light after, into the darkness, if you will, the morning after the night. Uh, Here is this bursting forth of God's promises being fulfilled. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. Hear God's word. The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for everyone. 
Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we ask that you would attend to the reading and preaching of your word, that your spirit uh, would apply the truths of it to our heart, and that we would see Christ, we would see your faithfulness, and we would rejoice. Help me to faithfully declare these things in my weakness, for I ask this in Jesus' name. Sarah's been through a lot. She's been through a lot. She faithfully followed Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans to a foreign land. Obviously, she had to leave her family behind. Not only that, but she is uh, barren and old. Not only that, but her husband has uh, let two kings take her as a wife. Twice this happens. Not only that, but she and Abraham decided that they would take this promised matter into their own hands. And they decided that they would have a surrogate, an Egyptian uh, servant, take the place of Sarah and give uh, them a son. Of course, Sarah had great regrets after that. Uh, lashed out against Hagar in her resentment. And, and then, so all of this is happening, and in the midst of this, the Lord says to, to Abraham and to Sarah, you will have a son. And in fact, in one year, from the time the angels visited them, in one year's, in a year's time, the Lord will visit you, and you will give birth. And Sarah, at this point, she scoffs, she's just, she scoffs and laughs to herself, and she says, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She's kind of grown cynical. But it's no wonder that she feels forlorn. Life has not exactly turned out as expected. Sin, sorrow, pain, disappointment, longing, and loss. I'm guessing that for many of you here today, but this is not an uncommon feeling. That many of you have been through a lot. And it's hard. It's exceedingly difficult to keep your chin up, isn't it? To put on that smile. To keep going and believe that the pain that you face and continue to face is for a purpose, for a reason. Or that it can in any way be redeemed. Some of you bear that heavy load. And so, joy and happiness can be elusive. It's like trying to hold smoke in your hands. We have it for a second. We look, we open our hands and it's gone. Joy, joy is hard sometimes. It's much easier, in fact, to give in to those feelings and allow the disappointments and heartaches of this world to grow into things like cynicism, bitterness, resentment. And then we take these feelings out on others. Isn't that what we do? 
We take our bitterness, our resentments, and our feelings, and we thrust them onto one another. But the truth of the matter is, you know, our poor wives and our poor husbands and our children. But the truth of the matter is, it's really directed to God. Our text this morning is like a blast of fresh air in a dank dungeon. It's like our our hearts are being swept away of the stagnation and gloom and there's life and vitality and happiness. We can't help it, right? Uh, I'm I'm loving this season of life at CCPC. Uh, The fact that we got to baptize little Joel was such a joy and pleasure. But there's, there's so many babies here. I hear them crying out. I know that there's some on the way. I'm so excited. It's like this breath of fresh air into the life of our church, into the season of our church. And so it is for Sarah here after some 90 years of barrenness. Can you imagine? And there's laughter. And there's delight in the birth of Isaac. But I think the joy and laughter here is much bigger than just that little baby eyes. Much bigger than that. It's a delight in the faithfulness of God. It's a delight and joy in who God is and what He has done. You see, the antidote for gloom and despair is not seeking earthly pleasures and just kind of moving from pleasure to pleasure. We do that, don't we, sometimes? It's like, we're just going to fill our... Sometimes we're busy. We just fill our life with busyness because then we don't have to think about the hurt and the pain. Some of us just are pleasure seekers. We go after pleasure. For some of us, we seek detachment, stoicism, coldness. As if, you know, it was in the great uh, song, you know, writer, um, Paul Simon, didn't he say, I am a rock, I am an island... Some of us are like that. Some of us try to avoid every possible pain in life. It's like we put bumpers on everything. We just kind of spread out the bumpers as far as we can because we don't want to experience pain and sorrow. That is not the antidote for the gloom and despair. The antidote is to see and delight in the faithfulness of God who is present, who is powerful, and who provides all that we that's the antidote. Is lifting our eyes off ourselves and our circumstances and lifting them up to the covenant God who, who is faithful to the end, who is present, who is powerful, and who provides all that we need. And that's my exhortation to you today is this the light in the faithfulness of our God. The light in his faithfulness. So we're going to look at it in three parts. First, finding delight in the intimate presence of God. That he meets us where we are. Second, delight in the infinite power of God. And then finally, delight in the inscrutable providence of God. The inscrutable providence of God. His ways are not our ways. Right? But they're good. So those three things. First, find delight in the intimate presence of God. Part of God's faithfulness is that he is present with us. It's not uncommon in the Psalms for the psalmist to cry out something to the effect of what we read in Psalm 22. You can 
go through the Psalms and you'll find these things first. But uh, uh, in Psalm 22, maybe expresses it better than any. When the psalmist blasts out at the beginning of the psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Sometimes, it feels like God is distant and far off. That He doesn't hear us, or worse, that He doesn't care about our plight, or He's not being. Now, it is true that the Lord turns His countenance sometimes from us, or figuratively turns His face from us. Sometimes He does that. The question is why, and I think we'll sort of tease that out a little bit, but the truth of the matter is, despite what we feel and experience, He never abandons His people. He said to His disciples, right about, right before He was about to leave them, right? He's about to ascend to heaven. He is resurrected from the dead, and I can imagine that they are so excited. They finally have the risen Lord Jesus, that the kingdom of God is going to be ushered in, and so Jesus is like, here's our mission. You're going to go out and tell all the world about me, and you're going to baptize everybody. And then what does He say? And I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And then He goes up to heaven. Then He goes up to heaven. Two truths there. Sometimes he leaves us. He, and he says later in the Gospel of John, Well, I had to leave you because I needed to send my spirit to you, but this promise is sure. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. So it is for Sarah. Ninety years of barrenness. No doubt she prayed and cried out. And no doubt, as year after year went by, she felt a sense of distance. And she would ask, where are you, Lord? Do you remember Hannah later on? We, we, we read Hannah's song after she was given, she gave birth to Samuel. But before that, she would go to the temple and pray every day. She would go and pray, Lord, give me a son. I don't doubt it was this similar for Sarah. Ninety years. Lord, where are you? And then boom. text says the Lord visited Sarah as he said he would. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. It's interesting. The English translation here uses the same, or uses two different words for the same Hebrew word, as he said he would. And, um, and then later it says, as he promised. But it's the same word, it's the same idea, said is a sort of rude or wooden translation. And the ESV decided to translate it promise, which I think is very good. But it's interesting because throughout uh, the Hebrew Bible, there is no word for promise. It's just the word said. When God speaks, His word is true. What God says is a promise. He does exactly what He said He would do. And the Lord had promised to come and visit Sarah 
We read this back in chapter 18 when these three mysterious visitors came to Abraham and Sarah, two of them being an angel, angels and one of them being the Lord himself. And at that point, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. God said, God did. One of the most spectacular truths of Christianity is that God is not far off. He's not some distant deity who leaves us to our devices. He is not aloof, but he is a God who is present with us. And what makes this all the more spectacular and wondrous to think about, that God says, I will come to you, I will visit you. He visited them and said, in a year I'm going to come back and visit you again. That the fact that he's there and he presents himself to her is one of the most spectacular truths of Christianity. That he's not far off is because who is God if nothing but holy and just? Who is God if he's not somebody... Who, if we were to see him face to face apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would be utterly destroyed. And yet God comes into our midst. He draws near to us. We don't deserve his gracious presence. It ought to bring destruction. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, that should be for all people's everywhere without distinction. And yet God condescends to us. He comes down not to destroy, but to redeem. Not only do we see that here in this intimate meeting where God opens Sarah's womb, but we see it throughout Scripture, and we see it most significantly in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Who enjoyed glory with God, equality with God. He didn't consider that something to be held on to, but he made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant. He took on flesh, and he came down, and he suffered, and he died. Intimate presence that we might have love. The Lord visits us. He doesn't leave us in our despair. It's that he's present with us in the room. The psalmist acknowledges this. You know, in Psalm 22, he cries out, Where are you, God? But in Psalm 139, he says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand is with me. Believe me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. There is nowhere we can go and escape the presence of God. So how is it that we find the light when it feels as though God is far off? when he seems to be silent. I think first and foremost we remind ourselves that he promised us, just as he promised Sarah, I will meet you, I'm going to come to you, I'm going to do this thing for you. We have to remind ourselves of the promises of God that he has said he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, that he will be with us to the very end of the age. 
Second, not only do that, but we cry out to him in our grief. We cry out. And one of the most amazing things about Psalm 22 is it is the cry of David. It's the cry even of Jesus himself. But it's not the cry to a God who is not present. It's a cry to a God who is there. It's a cry of faith and trust. We cry out to him. Lord, I know that you've promised this in your word that you'll never leave me or forsake me. I know this to be true. Show me your grace and mercy. Because I don't fear. Reveal to me the wonders of your mercy so that I can declare it. So that others may know your glory. Our God is not far off. He's faithful. And He's near. Second, we can find delight in the infinite power of God. What makes this story so ludicrous is the age of Abraham and Sarah, right? Um, Abraham's 100 and Sarah is 90. And throughout the account of Abraham, this is pointed out over and over again. You notice that as we go through as we go through the story of Abraham, it's pointed out, Abraham's this old, Sarah's this old, Abraham's this old, Abraham's this old. It's almost like it's trying to drive home a point that there's no reasonable expectation of having a baby. In fact, there's no reason to expect that at all. In fact, it would be absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous and ludicrous if they did. It was impossible. Now, I think we live in a day and an age where we think that we can explain just about everything that happens through scientific reasoning, scientific explanation. Um, and and there are, it's, it's amazing. We can explain lots and lots through um, what God has revealed to us in His world. And we've learned so much as, human, as humans about the natural world. But I, but I think it's made us a little dull or, or a little less aware of God and His power. I don't think it should, but I think it does. Meaning, I think the more we study the world and, and how God has created it and made it, it also causes us to have wonder and awe and amazement and who God is and all of His beauty and creativity. But oftentimes it makes us dull to the power of God. Because you start to explain things away. It's like if you were to go to... Uh, if you were going to look at the Grand Canyon and you're just sitting there and wondering on this huge expanse and somebody starts to sit there and give you a scientific reasoning on why this space is created by geological, by, by the, you know, the water carving through the rock, it kind of, you kind of lose some of the, the wonder. It's not that it's bad. Maybe for some of you who are scientists and say, no, it gives me more wonder. That's great. But I think it sometimes makes us less aware or dull to the power of God. At least that's what it seems like. Things are less amazing. But more troubling than that, than that sort of kind of dullness that we get, more troubling than being bored by natural wonder, which is tragic, is that we as modern folk do not look for or expect God to work miraculously. I just don't think we do. I think we, we say, as Christians, we know, we can say, yes, God works miracles. I don't know that I ever expected. I don't think so. 
we get uncomfortable with scriptures where the laws of nature are defined. But interestingly, this is, this is right at the very heart of our faith, that God not only works His providence through natural moves, which is wondrous, but that He works above them and against them at times to show His might and His power. He floods the earth. He rains fire from heaven. He parts the Red Sea. He provides manna from heaven. He closes wombs and He opens wombs. Even the womb of a 90-year-old woman, even the womb of a virgin that has never had a man, He creates life. And if that isn't enough, He brings the dead to life. Our God is no small God. He is not even a clockmaker who just sets the world on its courses and lets it go. No, He is a God who spoke all creation into existence by fiat and upholds His creation and will redeem and restore His creation. Even the winds and the waves obey Him. There is nothing that is under, not under His power and authority. Nothing can thwart Him. So when you bring your sorrows, your infirmities, your sins, your hurts, yourself to God and cry out to Him. Not only is this God present, but He has all the power of heaven at His disposal. And as His child, believer, as His child, He cares for and He gives you exactly what you need. Everything you have is exactly what you need. I mean, sometimes the hard stuff is what you need. Now, you may not understand why. You may not understand what's going on with God, but hear this. See, our problem is not only do we not think, think we, we, we know what we need, right? Like we know exactly. If you ask anybody here, what do I need? Well, I, I need another hundred bucks. I need another thousand, ten thousand. I, I need a new car. I need to get a better job. I need to get married. I need to have a child. I need, we say all these things that we need. This sovereign king who rules and reigns, who governs your life, knows exactly what you need better than Our problem is that we think we know what we need. So that when things don't go our way or according to our timetable, we conclude either God is not present or God is not able or God doesn't care. That is not powerful. The text says not only did he visit Sarah when he said he would, but the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son, and they named him Isaac, which means laughter. You see, it isn't just modern folk who struggle to believe that God can work above or against his creation miraculously. Abraham and Sarah didn't believe it. They both struggled to believe, and so they laughed at God. I don't know if you remember this, but they both laughed at God. We kind of remember Sarah, because Sarah laughed when she heard him, and the Lord said to her, why did you laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. What are you talking about? And the Lord says, 
No, you, you laughed. But actually, Abraham had laughed as well. When he, he fell on his face when he heard that he was going to have a son. And he laughed and he, he just said, Lord, why don't you use uh, Ishmael? No, no, Abraham. My ways are above your ways. My power is above your power. Your ideas on what is right and the way and the path forward is not what I have for you. When we see God's powerful, miraculous working in Scripture, as we see here in the text, it ought to cause us to delight. Because it means that there is hope. Think about this. If everything, if God is not able, God is not powerful, God is not faithful, and He doesn't do what He said, then what hope do we have? But as we look back over Scripture and we see all that God has done, and we look across the past of our own life and we see all that God has done, and we think about what God has promised He will do, and we know that His words are yes and amen, that should cause us to delight. Because there's hope. Hope in the resurrection of the life and the life to come. Hope in the that the circumstances we face are not outside God's sovereign will or purposes. Hope because we know that He in fact, in fact works all things together for our good and His glory. You don't have a small God. You have the sovereign King, Creator, and Heaven and Earth who not only rules and reigns over all of creation from the furthest planets to the smallest ants, He not only reigns and rules over all of that, but He rules and reigns over your heart as a heavenly Father. And He loves you. And He cares for you. Delight in that. Consider that. Finally, delight in the inscrutable providence of God. Well, I'm using this word providence a lot and we get to define it just a little bit for you, but it is God's care of His creation. It's upholding and executing all that He wills in this world. There's nothing that is outside of His providential care. Nothing. There's nothing that stands outside of it. So when I talk about providence, it's everything from what God has for you tomorrow to just everything in your life. All the sorrows, the hardships, the joys, all of it, all bundled together. But it's inscrutable. I use that word because oftentimes we do not comprehend what the world is doing. I don't know how many conversations I have with people as they come to me and unburden themselves and they say, I don't get God. I don't get it. Why? Why a world? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But what He has for us, what He purposes for us, is both good, ultimately bringing about His glory, and we can take that to the bank. Now, here's the problem that Abraham and, and Sarah faced. Why did God wait till they were old? Like, why didn't he just give them this child in their youth? And he could have said to Abraham and Sarah when they had the baby in their younger days, he said, this child is going to be the promised one. Why? Not only that, he could go forward in Scripture and say, um, 
Why does he do this over and over again? He did this with, with, uh, with Hannah, as I already mentioned. What, what, is the, what is God's purpose in this? Opening of the wombs late in life or, or doing some miraculous thing. Um, I think there's a few things that we can determine. Some things in our life we can't always determine. But there are some things that I think Scripture teaches us that we can determine. And one of the reasons that I think God says, I'm going to wait till they're old, is to show the surpassing greatness of his power. Right? This has nothing to do with what Abraham and Sarah could produce. But it has everything to do with what the Lord can do. Everything to do with what the Lord can do. Secondly, I think it's also to show the problem of sin and the curse. Of the effects of the fall in this world. You'll remember going all the way back to the beginning of Genesis that, that there was a curse given after the fall. And part of that curse was pain and childbearing. And Women born children understand this very viscerally. But I think there's a deep pain and barrenness that some heartbreaking pain that is a result of the brokenness of the world and the curse of the And so I think what God is doing is He's reminding Abraham and Sarah, and He's reminding all of us who are reading this that. Yes, this curse is real and it has deep effects and it breaks things down and it destroys, but it's going to be undone. I'm going to change things. The barren is going to give birth. And so there's a beautiful picture here of God's redemption and power and how He's going to change the curse from barrenness to fruitfulness, from death to life. But the only way it happens is through the divine battle. That's it. The only path forward. Second, thirdly, so you have to show the surpassing greatness of his power, to show the nature and problem of the sin and the fall and the curse of the fall. And then thirdly, to help us to trust, to help Abraham to trust and rest and wait and to call upon him. Sometimes the Lord brings these things into our life just for that purpose. To say to us, you are not independent, but you are dependent. When you cry out, why, O oh Lord, you're showing that dependency. This is what he desires. To trust him, to address in him. And then finally, I think it's the point to Jesus. This story is a picture of the promise to come. Not only in the length of time, so going from, you know, that there being this huge length of time before the promised seed to come is to say, yes, Isaac's going to come, but Isaac is not the ultimate seed. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed at, by this seed, but there's going to be one who's going to come in the length of time. Far from this point, right? Not only that, but you have this parallel, though it's different. There's a parallel here between the barrenness of Sarah and the the virgin sort of inability of Mary. It's going to require divine power to bring about my, my man, the Messiah. And I'm going to do that. Of course, as it points forward to the one who is Jesus, the Son of God who comes and meets with us, it points to the barrenness of Jesus on the cross. See, hung and died 
he was forsaken, and he was left bereft. And he is the one who cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? points us to Jesus. This, I think, is what we can see in terms of God's purpose here in the story of Abraham. It's a little different for us because we don't... (laughs) Yes, we fit into God's redemptive plan and we are part of His kingdom and all of that, but there's something else for us because we don't know God's purposes. We don't have scripture to kind of unfold our life and to say, why was I not able to to bear a child? Or why was I not able to get married? Or why was I not able to get this job? Or why was I left with this disability? Or why did I have to face this abuse? Or whatever it is in our life that we face, we often don't have the answer. And we may never fully have the answer this side of glory. What we do know, though, is this. Is that He is a God who is present. He is a God who is powerful. And He is a God who is working all things together for our good and His work. So as we think about God's providence, His inscrutable providence that we can't grasp and comprehend, how do we help ourselves find delight? And this is where I want to close. Um, There's a couple things that we see in our text. The first thing that we note here um, is that they are reminded of the promises of God. It's kind of dripping from the beginning of the text here in Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And so I think one thing that we can do is we can remind ourselves of what God promises to us. Spend time in his word going through it and saying, Lord, what have you promised to me. What, what do I know? Okay, you will never leave me nor forsake me. You will, are with us to the very end of the age. I know that's true. That you grant to us all that we need for life and godliness. That you've given to us life eternal. And that we have hope of eternal life that's kept in heaven for us. That's stored there and can never be taken away. We can hold those things. Those promises. Second thing that we can do, and we see this in the text, is that we in trusting in those promises, walk in obedience. You notice what happens? First, Abraham and Sarah, they name Isaac according to the name that the, 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 the Lord had given to them. It's the first thing that they do. And of course, it's the name is laughter. Isaac is the name laughter because there's all this irony here going on where they were scoffing and laughing. How could the Lord ever do this? And here he is, the Lord does it. And now their laughter goes from scoffing to joy. But they named him Isaac. The second thing, they circumcised him and made him. Remember, they had made covenant, a covenant with the Lord. And God said, this is how you will obey my covenant. You will circumcise your children on the eighth day. And obey. Third thing that we can do. So, remind ourselves of God's promises. Walk in faithfulness according to God's word. We can look back and see his faithfulness. This is very important. One of the one of the most discouraging things that we can do is to be forgetful. Like forgetfulness. You know, it's, it, first of all, we can forget God's call on how we should live and kind of do things that we know are wrong or forget that are wrong. Uh, but the second thing we can do is we can forget all of God's goodness to us in the past. One of the, in, in pastoral counseling, one thing that often comes up that, that 
uh, I try to ward off is that when you have a husband and a wife and they're talking together and they start saying, you always and you never, right? Those are, those are bad words. Always and never. And whenever I'm saying that, I said, well, is it always? Let's try to remember a time when it wasn't always. Well, you never. Well, never? Is it never? Well, not never. Oh, can you name one time when this happened? Yeah, can you name another? And what does that do for that couple? It starts to build back that relationship and trust. Well, so it is for us. When we start to look back on what God has done for us, we start to consider all the things that he has done for us, all of a sudden it builds up that relationship that we have. Look back. And look back in Scripture. Look back in the history of the church and the history of the world. Look back in your own life. Look back in your friends. And, and on that, encourage one another by sharing God's faithfulness and story. Share with one another. And then finally, and this is where we're going to close, look to Jesus. What brings us to light in the inscrutable providence of God is to consider the providence of the cross of Jesus Christ that saves us from our sins, the one who was forsaken and endured suffering and death that we might be brought into eternal life. As we come to the table of the Lord Jesus and we consider all that the Lord has done, we start to delight. And we can endure. This is my plea for you, friends. Delight in the faithfulness of our God. Delight in the intimate presence of our God, particularly in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the presence of His Holy Spirit. Delight in the infinite power of God, ultimately displayed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and delight in the inscrutable providence of God that He used the ignominy of the cross to bring about eternal life and salvation for you.